the rest of us, uh, I want to encourage you to begin making your way to Genesis chapter 2, which, amazingly enough, in the Pew Bibles in front of you, is on page 2. So, pretty easy to find. And by the way, those Pew Bibles, as always, um, those are uh, a gift to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in your own uh, home, uh, you are more than welcome to take that with you. But we will be in Genesis 2 um, this morning, Genesis 2 and 3. Before we do that, I, I thought I'd reflect a little bit on life as a teenager. Um, when I was younger, when I was a child, my dad would use a variety of phrases. Maybe your father had phrases like these, just, just different sayings that he would share with me, right? And one of those sayings was, because I said so. Did anybody else have a dad whose favorite saying was, because I said so? Okay, okay, I feel, I, I feel you in the, in the place today. So here's the thing. When, when you're a little kid and dad out literally has like several feet on you, you're like, okay, I get it. He's taller, he's bigger, he's stronger, fine. But when I got to be a teenager, I kind of had that whole Mark Twain thing happen. If you heard about the way Mark Twain explains this, that basically, you know, when he became a teenager, he discovered that his father just became really dumb, lost all his knowledge, and he only reacquired the knowledge once Mark Twain got into his 20s. Well, that was my experience. And so it really drove me nuts, up the wall, whenever my dad, particularly as a teenager, would say, because I said so. Because I was often asking, you know, hey, why? Why can't I do this with my friends? Why do I have to be back by this time? Why do I have to do this first? Oh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Why, why, why? And it just drove me nuts. Now, why did it drove, drive me nuts? Because I wanted to be in charge of my own life. I was done with this whole do what mom and dad wants to do thing, and I wanted to uh, strike out and do things my own way. Well, that's kind of what has brought us to this message series this morning. And what we're going to be doing over these three Sundays is looking at a series of topics around uh, the gender of human beings, the fact that human beings are binary in gender, created male and female. We're going to be looking that, at that in part because when our elders look around at our culture today, we see a culture that is basically totally resisting, just an outright rebellion to our Heavenly Father, who isn't just telling us because they said so. He, he gives us good explanation as we're begin, going to begin to explore today. But we look around and there's all kinds of confusion where people are rebelling against God's uh, creation for their identity as a man or a woman. They're rebelling against God's idea of, of marriage as though human beings could ever redefine marriage. It's kind of like redefining gravity. It just, we can't do that. And then we also see sister churches, sometimes even within our own denomination, who are beginning to make decisions and, and take actions where, re regarding uh, the way women serve in their churches that, again, we just feel like, what's going on here? Are they reading the same Bible that, that we're reading? So we just felt like it would be good to reset some things 
and make sure that we were going back to Scripture, back to God's Word, and our understanding of what it means to be created in God's image as male and female, and the implications that has for our marriages and for our churches. And so with that, I'd like to invite you to join me here in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me as I read these verses for us this morning. We'll be reading Genesis 2, 15 through chapter 3, 1 through 7. Moses writes, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden and took Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to the wild, every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. He, God took one of, those rib, one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at least is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his mother, his father and mother, and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat, or, eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> This morning, I wanted to begin with, I think, three essential questions that will be helpful to us as we prepare ourselves to look at that passage. The first essential question is, who is God? Who is God? Now, I know that might seem like a pretty basic question to start this message with, but I assure you, I assure you it is, is essential. I can't think of a single problem, sin, or other question that can't be helped by clarifying and maybe recalibrating who is God. In my experience, all relationship breakdowns, mental health challenges, stressors, fears, and temptations would all become a lot more surmountable if we would just begin with the question of who God is. 
Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but the series these, over, over these three weeks is called Male and Female, God Created Them. And this message is entitled God's Design in Creation. So it would appear that it's pretty important that we understand who God is if we're going to get anything out of this series. So who is God? Well, first, God is. That's how he introduced himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Effectively, God's name is an expression of his self-existence. He simply is. No one made him or gave him birth. Now, I know that's a little confusing coming right after Christmas. All right, but no one gave him birth. No one made him. And there has been never been a time that he has not existed, and there will never come a day when he will cease to exist. God is the origin and the creator of all things, visible and invisible. There is no one greater, not by any metric, no one greater in power, presence, knowledge. And guess what? There never will be anyone greater because God would have to make them in order for them to exist. God is the supreme being of all the universe. What he says is, what he says goes. God speaks and it just exists. It becomes reality. Second, God is neither male nor female. Because God is who I've just described him to be, he is the only being throughout the whole universe who gets to choose his own pronouns. I'm speaking about God in masculine terms only because that's how he wishes to be spoken of. As we're about to see, this is an intentional act on his part. So God is so great that his whole is infinitely greater than the parts of male and female. He invented masculinity and femininity. We wouldn't have a clue what those things were if he didn't create and define them for us by making humans binary beings. This is who God is. Second big essential question. What is complementarianism? Now, I know that's a little bit slightly different than the notes you have in front of you. I modified the form of that question uh, late in the game. Now, according to the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, who coined the term in 1987, uh, complementarianism is the biblically derived view that men and women are complementary, possessing equal dignity and worth as the image of God and called to different roles that each glorify him. So this view surveys all of Scripture and concludes that men and women have equal worth and standing before God due to their creation in his image. It further concludes that God has intentionally designed human beings to have a mutual interdependence between men and women, which, where each possesses qualities that the other lacks, so that in order to fulfill unique roles men and women are called to play in the home and in the church, they must work together. Now, this is going to be more thoroughly explored in the next two Sundays by Pastor Jason. Complementarianism uh, claims the Bible teaches that as a man, I have ways that I can bear God's image and represent him in the world that a woman cannot, and vice versa, that women have ways that they can bear the image of God and represent him to the world that a man cannot. This is true, by the way, whether we're single or married. We're not 
doesn't, we don't have to be married to represent uh, God's image. But if we are married, then the husband and wife together certainly can bear God's image in, in an even more profound or literal way because the marriage involves the union of two beings who are different from one another in critical aspects. Complementarianism is usually contrasted with biblical equality or Christian egalitarianism. Christians for biblical equality, that's kind of the counterpart organization, if you will, uh, to the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, begins their document defining their position with this statement. The Bible, they say, quote, the Bible teaches the full equality of men and women in creation and in redemption. The rest of the document goes into greater detail. That's, that's the best I could find as far as a succinct statement of their position. Now, as you heard, CBE claims its position is based on Scripture as well. So now we have a problem. We have two different revelations being, two different truths being claimed from the same revelation. Biblical equality would have the church believe that after a thorough study of Scripture, the equality of men and women is universal, impacting all spheres of life, including the family and the church. As a consequence, virtually all distinctions between men and women are voided. Men and women become interchangeable parts. Either one will get the job done. The elders of this church are complementarians. Third essential question. Why do both similarity and distinction matter? Why do similarity and distinction matter? In other words, why is it so important that we recognize that all men and women have in common, that have certain things in common, while also upholding the distinctions between them. Well, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, we're given a big reason why the similarity between men and women matters. He writes in Galatians 3, verse 20, 28, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen. God sent one Savior, one time, to take care of sin. Men don't need one Savior and women another. The one Savior, Christ, was sufficient for all. Now, why is that? Because all of us have fallen short of God's glory. No one of us, men or women, uh, seek the Lord. Men and women alike bear the sin nature inherited from Adam and Eve. We're born spiritually dead because... They spiritually died after eating that fruit. Now, with regard to salvation and God's plan for redemption, yes, we are, quote, all one in Christ. And in this area, the distinctions between Jew and Greek, slave and free, men and women, no, they don't matter in that situation. Jesus is equally the Savior of all. Women don't need extra salvation as though they're more depraved than men. And men aren't favored above women as though God provides them some different superior salvation than the one provided to women. As Paul himself writes in Ephesians 4 verse 5, there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now I want, us, I want to warn us about abusing this isolated verse and making it say things it does not. Some, particularly uh, biblical, those who hold to biblical equality, would love to take this one verse and make it the lens through which we interpret the rest of Scripture. When we consider the context of this verse within Galatians, when we consider the additional biblical writings of the same author on the subject of the relations between men and women in the home and in the church, we're going to look at some of those today, we're going to look at those in coming weeks, 
And when we consider the broader witness of Scripture, including our primary passage in Genesis 2 and 3, it's not possible to make this one verse mean what some so desperately want it to mean. The similarity between men and women as it fosters the dignity and value of every human being is a good thing. The way this truth reminds us that we are all sinners in need of a Savior is a very good thing. But the distinction between men and women still very much matters to God. Now, for the sake of time, let me give you just one brief example of this in Scripture. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 22 in verse 5. And it says this, A woman is not to wear male clothing, and a man is not to put on a woman's garment. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. Apparently, it matters to God that his people, at the very least, maintain a difference in appearance between men and women to reduce confusion. Men are to dress as men are expected to dress in that culture, and women are expected to dress as women are expected to dress in that culture. Subverting those gender norms is called detestable to the Lord your God. This is why drag queen story hours are so problematic for so many of us. The distinctions between men and women really matter to God, and they are reflected in the things like the clothing we wear. Now, just so you know, I don't, I don't myself seek to proof text with one, one isolated verse, uh, like I <laughs> accused the Christian egalitarians of doing with Galatians 3.28. L- let me read the verses that follow this one. I'm not going to put these on the screen, but these are the verses that follow. This is verses 6 through 11 in Deuteronomy chapter 22. There it continues, if you come across a bird's nest with chicks or eggs, either in a tree or on the ground along the road, and the mother is sitting on the chicks or eggs, do not take the mother along with the young. You may take the young for yourself, but be sure to let the mother go free so that you may prosper and, and live long. If you build a new house, make a railing around your roof so that you don't build, bring blood guilt on your house if someone falls from it. Do not plant your vineyard with two types of seed. Otherwise, the entire harvest, both the crop you plant and the produce of the vineyard, will be defiled. Finally, verses 10 and 11, do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Do not wear clothes made of both wool and linen. So what's the continuity between verses five, verse 5 and verses 6 through 11? Well, the designer of all these things is revealing how they've been designed to work for everyone's benefit. And that, no, human beings are not free to just mix and match and and create confusion there. That there's things that have been designed to work certain ways. There are considerations and obligations we are bound to. Our creator is telling us that there is order and function built into all these things that's intended to be a blessing. Now we're ready to consider God's design and creation for humanity to exist as male and female. And again, that design choice, if you will, has far-reaching ramifications and applications. Many fear and or resent the significance of humanity's binary existence, but those with eyes to see and ears to hear realize the profound blessing it is to share the world as men and women. So what do men and women have in common, and how are they distinct? I believe there's four four things that men and women have in common, and there are ways in which each of those in which men and women are distinct. The first one is that we are called to be 
all called to be divine image bearers. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, uh, we read, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Now look at this. In this one verse, we're told that God created human beings in his image twice. And then the fact that he created us as male and female is connected to our capacity to bear his image. The Imagio Dei, the image of God, is a grand truth of Scripture with many implications beyond what we will consider here today. For now, I'd suggest that human beings bear the image of God by doing three things, by reflecting, by representing, and relating. Men and women bear the image of God by reflecting. If you think about it, the reflection of something in a mirror does not contain the full glory of the object being reflected. But by looking at a reflection, we get a good idea of what the real thing is like. We reflect God to each other and to the creation around us. Many, not all, of the things that are true about God are in some derivative, partial way true of us. Secondly, we we do this by representing. Now, we're going to dig more into this in a moment, but it's true that part of humanity's function on earth is to represent God to each other and to the creation around us. So much of what we do as human beings represents God's relationship to us and all creation. Now, long ago, for example, the the king's seal uh, would represent the king in that place and in those events. And if you had the king's seal, if you had the image of his authority, and you were the one holding, possessing that image, then you represented the king in that place. That's, That's what's happening here. And third, human beings uh, do this by relating. As we will see soon, humanity is meant to exist in community. The marriage union, the family, the church, these are all ways this is to be realized. When human beings love one another, whether it's as husband and wife, parents and children, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow church members, we experience the kind of community present in the triune God himself. Only human beings can bear God's image. No other creature has this capacity or purpose. So what distinguishes men and women from one another as English, English, yes, as image bearers? Neither men or women can fully bear God's image alone. God's too great for that. This is the genius of God's design. He gives men and women the ability to reflect, represent, and relate in different ways unique to each gender. Start with the men. Men were made first. Remember, God doesn't do anything without purpose. By creating Adam before Eve, he was attempting to establish something before the fall that was intended to find application in the home and in the church. As Paul wrote in his first letter to his disciple Timothy, the order of creation is at least part of the basis for a list of instructions he gave Timothy regarding the conduct and relationship of men and women in the church. In 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 14, Paul wrote, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, we will get to that later, how Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. We'll get to that later when we look at those events in Genesis 3. For now, let's just acknowledge what Paul does here. 
he makes it clear that male headship in the church is not a consequence of the fall. It's not something that is a punishment or something that wasn't intended before the fall, but that it flows naturally from the order in which the first human beings were created. Now, I've read someplace uh, over the last couple of weeks that uh, some, um, particularly egalitarians, will say, well, then, then I guess uh, animals are, are more important than human beings because they were created first. No, no. This is about the order in which those who bear the image of God were created, not just created at all. Otherwise, we're all, we should all be worshiping the sun or something like that. So, um, I do think it's necessary to point out, though, that uh, Paul's words in 1 Timothy only apply to the church, and that similar words in passages penned by Paul and Peter limit the application of those passages to marriage. None of the passages that tie male headship in the home and church to things like creation order can be used to suppress or oppress women in general society. I don't know. Personally, it baffles me that women have only had the right to vote in this country about 100 years. That just blows my mind. I, I, I know that parts of the Bible were used to justify that, uh, denying the, the right to vote, but I just, it just blows my mind. And I would never allow a man to treat my wife or my daughter, particularly when she was unmarried, as servants to bark orders at. That's, that's not the dynamic generally between men and women. But within the home and within the church, there are ways in which this applies. Now, for women, we see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, we read that for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. The term was also used by God earlier in verse 18. Now, that need was fulfilled with the creation of Eve. She was created to be Adam's helper. Beautiful illustration of this. My wife and I have been, you know, coughing and hacking, you know, struggling. It's the best day I've felt, I felt the best in, in a, quite a while. And I didn't have time to relay a request to my wife. But when I got down to the kitchen, guess what? A nice, hot, steaming cup of tea was waiting for me in the kitchen for me to grab on my way in here today. That's just, that's being a helper. That's just doing all kinds of things to serve one another. To our ears, we may find the helper designation uncomfortable or even offensive. And that's, that has far more today to do with the unhealthy characteristics of our society, where individualism and self-actualization are completely out of control, than it does with the appropriateness of calling any human being the helper of another. And yet again, we must, this is why we must always ask, well, what does the rest of the Bible say? Well, among the more helpful answers we find are many verses of Scripture where God himself is called a helper, or he provides help. Here are two quick examples. The first is Psalm 124 and verse 8, where we read, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Think of it. The maker of, the he- of heaven and earth is not too proud to be known as the one who gives us help when we need. And another even more clear example is Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. I'll read it out of context, then I'll explain. And the other, Elijah, because he had said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. What's happening in Exodus 18, verse 4, is we're told that Moses... Uh, had called God his helper in the course of naming his second son. So this is a passage that's explaining the names of 
Moses' children. And uh, he actually describes God, the God of my father was my helper in the name of the second child. And by the way, in both of these verses and, and many of the others, the same Hebrew word for helper used in Genesis 2.20 is the word being used for help or helper in these verses. Adam, in Genesis 2, searches through all the forms of animal life for a suitable helper, and he finds none. That's because we're not animals. We're created in God's image, and only another who is created in God's image and designed for the purpose we can fill that need. The second way in which men and women have much in common and yet find different ways of expressing this calling is as partners in fruitfulness. Partners in fruitfulness. Men and women are both called to play their part in filling the earth with more and more image bearers. This partnership begins in marriage and the conception of new life, but it continues through all stages of parenting. There are many reasons to criticize our culture's approaches to parenting, but one positive development in recent decades has been the broad acceptance of active parenting, particularly for fathers, and the re-engagement of fathers with parenting as a whole. And by the way, multiplication um, that uh, we see referenced there in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 where it says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. That's the command of fruitfulness. You see that word multiply? Multiplication is a basic principle of God's plan for humanity and for the church. In this way, disciple-making and church planting build on the same strategy as human procreation. God is a multiplier. That's That's the way he works. Of course, men and women are designed by God with different but compatible anatomy, that makes procreation possible. Now, this biological function is one of God's clearest declarations of his plan for gender identity and human sexuality. There are things in our culture, excuse me, these are the kinds of things our culture still hasn't found a way around. Did you know that there has never, ever been a successful gender reassignment in all of human history? It has never happened. That's because the sex of a human body goes down to the chromosomal level. All the plastic surgery and hormone replacement therapy in the world can't change that. To those who legitimately struggle with their gender identity, some truths like this one will hit hard. And from the rest of us, that calls for compassion and patience, but not compromise. Also, did you know that it still takes a man and a woman, to conceive a child. Why? Because that also reflects God's design for human sexuality. Men and women are designed as partners for one another in the command to fill the earth. Genesis 2, verse 24, ties humanity's binary sexual compatibility to the institution of marriage, saying, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Within the context of a lifelong monogamous commitment, children flourish as they are cared for by the man and woman who gave them life. Again, for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, these truths can feel like truth bombs that are difficult to hear. And just as before, grace and love are available to everyone in Christ. That grace and love will transform any of us 
However, we need to be transformed. In this case, it will transform you one way or the other. Some with that background of same-sex attraction will find that Christ is able to draw them into lives and relationships where they can glorify God through the sexual aspect of a heterosexual marriage. Others will find that Christ strengthens them to live a celibate life, very much like the one Paul lived. We are called to be partners in fruitfulness. We have different ways of contributing to that partnership, distinct ways built into our very bodies. But the third way that men and women have something very important in common and yet express it differently is as agents of dominion. We find that back again in Genesis 1.28. This is the second half of that verse where God continues his commission to humanity and he says, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Now, men and women share the stewardship of the earth. Our shared role as agents exercising the authority delegated to humanity by God is a major way human beings represent God as image bearers. As the, as the passages on marriage and the church limit male headship within those two spheres, so this portion of a verse should not be misconstrued to justify abusing and exploiting the earth. Stewards manage something not on their own behalf, or excuse me, stewards manage something that they don't own, but on behalf of someone who does own it, to whom they will give an account. The earth's resources are truly given over to men and women for their use as agents of dominion, but we are accountable for that stewardship. Regarding men, how, how do men and women exercise dominion differently? Well, I, to be honest with you, I was only able to identify two ways that, are, that apply to men. The first is how Adam, before Eve was even created, was given the privilege of naming the kinds of animals in Genesis two nineteen and 20. God used the experience to show Adam that he did not have a mate as each of the animals did. Second, once Eve was created from Adam's side, he was given the privilege of naming her. Now, once again, before the fall, God purposely distinguishes the first man from the first woman in these two acts. Now, some people get, get concerned when we talk about this way that we're, we're going on some kind of power trip uh, for men, uh, but that's not is what is happening here. Uh, this kind of passage, for example, could never, ever be used to justify women as objects or to abuse them in any way. There's simply no justification for that ever. The power trip is God's. You see what he's doing here? Have you noticed that each one of these distinguishing things, it's about God saying, this is the order of things. It's about God saying, I'm designing this to work this way. And if human beings will do this, then they will be blessed. They will be, they will thrive and flourish. There's another way men are distinguished from women that could be associated with dominion over creation, and that is physical strength. Muscle mass, height, bone density, things like that. Now again, we're talking a bit in generalities here. Yes, there are certainly, I'm only, what, 5'8", something like that. There are women who are taller than me, and all, there are exceptions to, to some of this. But by and large, uh, men have physical advantages in, in some of these areas of their bodies. This seems to be what Peter alludes to 
in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, when he says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. God seems to have equipped the male body with some natural advantages over the female body, at least in those respects. Now, yes, men can erode uh, that advantage by not taking care of their bodies. And yes, women can work hard to increase their strength. uh, But even that generally has its limits. Of course, this is the source of the controversies of recent years involving the ability of so-called transgendered females to compete in female sports. As I noted earlier, no one has ever truly made that transition. So those who are born biological males, especially those who transition after testosterone, has done its God-given job of endowing that male body with its physiological advantages, retain those advantages when they begin competing against their naturally female competitors. That's why this is such a... One of the reasons, not the reason, why that is so, so controversial is the advantages it gives them. Now, as I said, I could not identify a specific way women exercise dominion differently than men, but Proverbs 31 came to mind as I was thinking about this. Now, when's the last time you took a good look at Proverbs 31? We often skip down to verses 28 through 31 where the the woman is called blessed by her children and, and kind of summarizes how wonderful she is. But if you read the preceding verses, you will see she does all kinds of dominioning. Is that a word, dominioning? My computer said it isn't. But you know what? I'm going to exercise some dominion and declare dominioning is a word. If you look at those preceding verses in Proverbs 31, you see over and over again, she does all kinds of dominioning. She buys, she sells, she closes deals, she invests. And oh, by the way, she draws on her strength because women have a kind of strength that men will truly never appreciate. And, manu- and she manufactures goods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, I, I know she does this as a wife. You know, some of you are going to say, oh, but she, she's, this is all described as a, a wife. But she's clearly not depending upon her husband to accomplish these things. I don't know if he's off to war or on a business trip or, or whatever, but, but she is accomplishing those things fully within her own capacity. Finally, we see another way in which men and women have much in common and yet have unique uh, distinctions, and that is as command keepers. If you, if you haven't uh, stayed there, you may want to go back to Genesis 2. I'd appreciate it if you could join me there in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 15, particularly verses 15 through 17. Uh, there we read, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the the garden of Eden to work it uh, and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now here, God gave Adam, before Eve was created, a command that was meant for all human beings. And we know it was meant for all human beings, And not just for Adam, not just for men, because it was applied to Eve the moment she broke it. And she herself was able to recite it. In the beginning, God's word was one sentence. Imagine that. Adam could factually say, I have memorized the entire Bible. 
God's word was given to him and entrusted to him to teach to others. God doesn't do anything without purpose, right? The implications of this should be fairly plain. Regarding men, and I do not want to make too much of this because that could be easily be done, and some have made too much of this. And I certainly don't want to preach Pastor Jason's message for him coming January 22nd on the church. But there sure seems to be a connection between this intentional act of God's before the fall and the scriptural limitation of the church office of elder to men. That's not prescriptive, but there is a precedent here that seems to play a role in that later uh, reality. Women are also accountable to keep God's commands, whether one or 600. Throughout Scripture, we see women commanded to teach other women as they are in Titus 2. We see women like Priscilla, along with her husband, used to, who, who were used to correct the doctrine of Apollos. That's Acts 18, verse 26. And surely female believers were among the Bereans who tested Paul's teachings against the Old Testament in Acts 17, 11. Have you noticed? None of these distinctions between men and women have been about inequality between men and women. Men are not inherently superior to women. God designed human beings to be able to function and flourish in the best possible way. And by his sovereign grace, that means men and women do have specific differences and do fill different roles, particularly in the home and in the church. That is his choice, his design. As with all of God's ways, we should rejoice in this with grateful hearts, but we don't. We got that from somewhere. That brings us to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of all of us. After God created Adam and Eve, living amid unspoiled paradise, an encounter with Satan changed everything for them and us. Now let's see how each one played their part in the fall of all of us. It began with a question of trust. Because as you look at the nature of sin, it kind of has these, this three-part nature. The first has to do with distrust. We see there at the beginning of Genesis 3 that Satan asked Eve, did God really say? It's almost, it almost doesn't matter that he totally butchered the command, but he did. Turning, the, turning it into a harsh prohibition from eating from any tree in the garden instead of the one specific tree. That's because his goal was to get her to question God's motives and authority. And speaking of authority, it is not an accident, at least in my opinion. It is not an accident that Satan approached Eve rather than Adam in this moment. As far as Eve and her part, Eve quotes God perfectly, almost. God, excuse me, Adam must have taught her God's word as the spiritual leader of his first-of-its-kind family. I said Eve almost quoted God perfectly. She adds something. Do you see it? If you compare, um, what is it? If you compare uh, Genesis two sixteen and seventeen with uh, Genesis three two and three, you'll find that they're almost word for word, except she says we were commanded not to touch the tree. Now, 
there's a certain logic to that, right? You can't eat from a tree if you don't touch it. So I'm not arguing with the logic. It just wasn't what God actually commanded. And it shows she's starting to drift from what God's command actually called them to. As for Adam, later in the passage, we're told that he's present. Now, the text never, t- never says whether or not he could hear Satan, but it does imply he could hear her. It does imply that he's, he's present for this interaction. So for whatever reason, he chose not to correct Eve, even though as, as the man, as the husband, he, he could have done so. Next, we see that it, through sin, in sin, we, dis, we seek to displace God in verses 4 through 6. This, this fall continued with a desire to displace God as the source and judge of good and evil. Self-actualization was on the table. Sinatra was in the wings, warming up his first rendition of I Did It My Way, which, by the way, you know, we've been picking, up, picking on Frank a lot lately. You know, Christmas Day, Brother Wayne was talking about this, you know, you know I did it my way, and now I'm doing it, so I'm sorry, Frank. Uh, but but that's, what, that's what's happening here. We're, we're seeing a displacement of God's rightful place as the king. And so Satan here, he seized the opportunity presented by Eve when, he added, when she added restrictions to God's sole command. He doubled down by first denying the truth of God's warning as death of death as punishment for disobedience, and then he openly attacked God's motives for giving the command in the first place. And Eve, we're, we're told by Moses, who was not present for these events, but inspired by the Holy Spirit to record them, says that Eve goes through an, an internal transformation. She's not just tempted to eat the fruit, she justifies eating it by deciding that her evaluation of the tree as good for fruit, as delightful to look at, and her evaluation of its fruit as desirable for obtaining wisdom, that her evaluation should count more than God's uh, command not to eat from it. Temptation, we're still, when we're experiencing temptation, we're still at a stage where we're saying to ourselves, or we're experiencing, well, I know this is wrong. Uh, something's telling me this is wrong. I, I don't feel it's, it's quite right. But it's when we cross that line into sin is when, when we do that, we know we've done that because we start saying things like, no one's going to know. I deserve this. It's just the one time. No one will get hurt. And the thousand other lies we tell ourselves in order to commit sin. Eve's crossing that line here. We see it in the revelation that Moses has given to share with us. Adam failed again to protect Eve from grasping for a place that only begin, belongs to God. And then finally, it ended with both of God's image bearers acting in disobedience of their creator. Quickly, they sensed everything had changed. They even tried to fix it for themselves, a a habit human beings have been caught up in ever since uh, by sewing up some fig leaves and providing their own coverings. Because who had told them they were naked? Satan, well, his work was done. This must have been the high point of his existence after his own rebellion, Eve ate the, ate the fruit, gave some to her husband who was there with her. He ate the fruit. And that brings us to Adam. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, which we read earlier, Paul said that Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. Now many, assume that may, many have assumed that that meant Adam was less accountable for the fall and that the blame mostly fell on Eve. You can read that verse that way. 
I'm not so sure that's what it meant, though. After all, Jesus isn't described as the second Eve. He's described as the second Adam in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul explains that sin and death entered the world through Adam and Eve. Adam, excuse me, Adam, not Eve. Because of the fall, all of us were subjected to sin and death. Some like to create loopholes based on the fact that none of the rest of humanity were present, but we all know the truth. In some way or another, we were there, and we'd, we'd have done the very same thing Adam and Eve did. All of this creates a predicament in which we find ourselves. We need a Savior. We need someone without sin of his own to take our sin upon himself and be punished for it. There's no other way. 